Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our TOSIC Phase 1 and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Terrence Jackson, a hepatobiliary and foregut surgeon at Cleveland Clinic Akron General. He's here today to talk to us about the latest advances in pancreatic surgery. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Shepard. So maybe uh, you can start by just telling us a little bit about uh, what you do at Akron General uh, and and what your role is as a surgeon? Yes, absolutely. I'm a, a hepatobiliary, um, pancreatic, and foregut surgeon, and I've uh, been here at Akron General for the last year. I've had the privilege of uh, taking care of patients with pancreas cancer, um, cholangiocarcinoma, bile duct cancers, uh, had liver cancers uh, of various kinds, uh, at the same time, gastric, uh, GE junction, and esophageal adenocarcinomas and squamous cell cancers. Um, these are all difficult diseases um, to take care of. And we've had, we have a wonderful team here that helps me uh, be a part of their team and take care of them. And it's been just a privilege. Well, certainly uh, it has been helpful to have um, surgeons like yourself at Akron General to, to help uh, manage patients. So, when you, when you think about surgery, particularly as we're talking about the pancreas, let's just start off. And what, what's most exciting in the field of pancreas surgery right now? So certainly some of the techniques have been around for a really long time. What are we thinking about in terms of new things? You're right. Uh, techniques and operations have been around for a very long time. And the, the new developments that we are seeing right now are more directed uh, therapy, targeted therapy, um, immune-mediated therapies that are uh, up and coming for treatment of pancreas cancer. And uh, also, we have several trials and studies that are in place to not just treat uh, pancreas adenocarcinoma, but also to try and prevent them. Because we see, we see hundreds and hundreds of patients with pancreas cysts every year resect or surgically treat so many of them. And really, not all of them end up being cancer, but we do it because we want to prevent adenocarcinoma. Uh, so there are studies coming out to try and identify those patients that are specifically at high risk for developing adenocarcinoma. And there are also uh, great studies coming out to tell us whether truly minimally invasive robotic or open pancreatectomies make any difference to patients. A lot of exciting stuff. I mean, I think this is a great age to be in. Uh, there was a time when chemotherapy wasn't as good and we we truly struggled with uh, pancreas cancer. And to be honest, we still struggle, but I think we're making great strides and this is an exciting time to be in. Well, prevention is always something that's, uh, that's good to hear about because I guess uh, I had a mentor who once pointed out the easiest, uh, easiest cancer to treat is the one the patient doesn't have. And so that is correct. So tell me a little bit about how you're thinking through cysts and 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 who to take to surgery and what characteristics that that those patients might have that would drive those decisions. 
excellent question. This is a this is a hot debated topic, just because of the sheer number of pancreas cysts we see. As our imaging studies have slowly improved in quality, we start to see more and more of these cysts. And the the baseline understanding that needs to be inculcated in all of our educational systems is that most of these cysts do not turn out to be cancer. We try to assess the risks of these cysts turning into cancer based on some specific factors. For example, the presence of a nodule within a cyst or the dilation of the main pancreatic duct or if the patient has symptoms like pancreatitis or jaundice. Now, these are not perfect and still more than 50% of the cysts that we resect either end up being completely benign or are low-risk cysts that may or may not have turned into cancer at all. On the flip side, you do often see cysts in the form of IPMNs, introductal papillary mucinous neoplasms, or mucinous cystic neoplasms that you resect, and it comes back as a lesion with high-grade dysplasia, which is the most satisfying operation of all because you know that you've caught it just in time. It's not turned into cancer yet, and you essentially prevented pancreas adenocarcinoma. So the goal behind deciding whether to resect or not is really dependent on balancing the morbidity of the operation and the risk of cancer. And this is where the new molecular markers uh, and genetic markers in terms of KRAS testing, BRCA testing, um, fluid analyses really help and tell us how much of a risk of cancer this patient has and hopefully guide us in performing the right operation for the right patient. So when we we think about resection of these cysts uh, um, and taking them out sort of to, just in case. How have newer techniques like robotic surgery or minimally invasive surgery made that less of an issue for patients or are we still understandably trying to avoid that? Oh no, absolutely. A minimally invasive surgery is definitely a boon, uh, a blessing in this age, uh, specifically for tail and body uh, lesions. We have multiple studies, multiple meta-analyses, which have looked at minimally invasive distal pancreatectomies or laparoscopic or robotic. Here at Akron General, we perform them laparoscopically and robotically and have clearly shown an improvement in opiate requirements, pain, length of stay, and morbidity from the operation. We are still trying to decide whether a right-sided pancreatic tumor would benefit from a minimally invasive uh, approach or not. A Whipple operation is is a a big operation. And uh, regardless of whether we tend to perform it laparoscopically, robotically, or in an open fashion, the patient tends to have a recovery that is not dominated by the incision. The recovery is really dominated by what's happening inside of them. And that remains the same whether you do it minimally invasively or in an open fashion. Again, here at Akron General, we do it robotically. We offer patients robotic whipples, laparoscopic whipples, and open whipples. And we select our patients very carefully. I believe morbidly obese patients, those who suffer from visceral or peripheral obesity, really do benefit from uh, minimally invasive approaches in either in either case. And that's been a development of the past five, five to 10 years or so where this has really started to pick up. And I think we're proud to be part of the team, even including 
main campus Cleveland Clinic to be one of the few centers around the world, around the country and the world to offer um, robotic pancreas surgery. Just thinking back to these uh, IPM hens, because, you know, they certainly are things people, as we, as we scan more often, we find these things more often and understandably they cause concern to patients and providers. And as we develop ways to, to sort of manage those, what does that conversation look like? I mean, I, I can imagine that there are patients who just want it out. Like, you know, they know pancreatic cancer is bad. Um, it, at what level are we able to educate that some of these new ways to, to observe might work? We do have some broad data to help guide these conversations, but you're right. These conversations are extremely challenging. And even if I present to the patient a very low risk, a less than 3% risk of a malignancy in a side branch IPMN, which has had minimal change over so many years, uh, sometimes it causes the patient so much mental anguish that they request an operation and we try to put it off for months and months and eventually we get to a point where they're either going to get an operation with us or they're going to go somewhere else and try and do the same thing. So this is challenging. Uh, the best thing I think we can do is to try and counsel the patients and have an informed discussion with them and their family members about the morbidity of the operation and balancing it with the risk of an upcoming or a progressive malignancy. And of course, we never turn a blind eye on any of these patients. They're always followed very closely with high quality imaging. And that helps reassure them that even if something does develop, we would not miss it to a point where it gets too late. So moving a little bit further down the spectrum, no cancer, IPMN, to early stage pancreas cancer. Within your practice at Akron General, how are you thinking about small nodules in the pancreas suspected to be um, a pancreatic cancer. Everyone's had the, the frustrations of um, someone going to surgery and then developing metastatic disease. And um, yes. how are we thinking about um, adjuvant therapies um, prior yes. to even resection of apparently resectable disease? Uh, excellent question. So every time I see someone who has a suspicion for a pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, or has a diagnosis of pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, the conversation is very, um, very different. I mean, we, we sit with the patient and the family, and one of the first things we say is that this is truly a systemic disease, not just a disease of the pancreas. And the treatment and standard of care for them is surgery and chemotherapy. Uh, even though I do not have evidence to prove that surgery first or chemotherapy first is better right now, I tell them up front that they need both in totality to have the best longevity, to have the best disease-free survival. And in all, we have, we have several um, pieces of evidence to suggest that more than 40% of patients that undergo surgery first never get to complete chemotherapy. So that doesn't serve our purpose. So um, I try to convince my patients to get chemotherapy up front. If we are able to give them totally neoadjuvant chemotherapy, as in all 12 cycles of fulfirinox up front, if possible, I would do it. Sometimes patients are not able to tolerate fulfirinox for that long, and then they end up wanting surgery beforehand. But the goal is to give them all the chemotherapy and all of surgery in the best way possible throughout treatment and not all of such high quality operations with good outcomes. And that's what provides them the best outcomes. 
So you, uh, you're in Akron General. So for those listening in, you're about an hour or so south of, uh, of our main campus. What works well in terms of engagement? You know, we're a health system. We, we provide, you know, good quality of care at our main campus and our regional sites. And the thought is if you walk into a regional site, you're going to get really good care. And we value you guys as a resource. But how do you, how do you coordinate that care and kind of keep in touch with colleagues and um, what works? So maybe you can help people might be listening and they're working within these kinds of systems. What, what's the secret to success? Great question. I love this question because one of the biggest problems we're facing right now is not just the fact that we struggle to provide high quality care. It's also the fact that we struggle to provide quality access to high quality care. So in that in that aspect, I think the Cleveland Clinic Foundation and the heads of our cancer departments, including our chairman at the Cleveland Clinic main campus, Dr. Walsh, they do a great job in establishing and helping these centers, which are not just within the main campus, aiding us in providing uh, high quality cancer care. Because, you know, even though we are technically a community center, so far out from the main city, we are uh, heading towards being a high volume esophageal cancer center, high volume rectal cancer center, and we are a high volume pancreas cancer center. And we've been able to do this through close collaboration with the main campus Cleveland Clinic. We've established the same standards of care that they have there. We have the same multidisciplinary board meetings, which are held several times a week. Uh, We have interdisciplinary meetings between the Cleveland Clinic main campus and ourselves. I think it is, at the end of the day, communication and uh, support for everyone around around you has really helped us um, grow. Uh, And of course, I have to speak volumes of the team that we have here, not just us uh, physicians, our our, um, practice leads, our nurses, our radiologists, pathologists, oncologists, radiation oncologists, everybody here, they just do an amazing job taking care of these patients before and after their operations and their therapy. And um, I think together we can provide great high quality care uh, and access to high quality care close to home. And uh, that's just a true blessing for all of our patients. Yeah, no, it's, it's, you guys do a really good job of having sort of the same cohesive group and support and things as we have here. So you maintain your own tumor board. Do you participate in our main campus tumor boards or um, is it kind of a case by case basis? How does that work? We do. We have Uh, at least two multidisciplinary tumor boards of our own here every week. Uh, And then uh, on a case-by-case basis, we do uh, discuss uh, things with uh, multidisciplinary boards uh, at Cleveland Clinic main campus as well. Just this last week, I was discussing with Dr. Berber, some of our oncologists and gastroenterologists at main campus, about a gentleman with uh, colon cancer liver metastases. It was a challenging case something that we are still growing and developing in terms of uh, management. This is a big lesion. We need a major epitectomy. And it was a wonderful discussion. We made great plans. and I think we're taking the best steps. So collaboration has just been amazing. Uh, I think the lack of um, uh, political agendas and things like that influencing patient care is something that it's that has to be spoken about because all the physicians that participate in the care of the patients, no matter where they are, really 
really put in their best effort and put all of their personal agendas aside and take care of them with us. It's just amazing. Yeah. Well, we've uh, mostly talked about pancreas at this point, but you do also uh, treat cholangiocarcinoma and liver and gastric and things that you'd mentioned. Um, yes. What's exciting in those areas? Are there are there things that you're doing uh, procedurally, surgically in those areas? Yes. What's what 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 excites you in those areas? Yes. So again, uh, robotic hepatobiliary and pancreatic surgery is something that's just starting um, throughout the world and here as well. Uh, we've been doing more and more robotic esophagectomies gastrectomies, uh, major hepatectomies. Uh, that really excites me because uh, even though these are big operations on the inside, some of their recovery is definitely incision driven. And I think by minimizing the morbidity of a major open incision, it helps the patients. Uh, in terms of um, various types of liver malignancies, uh, we have seen significant development in liver directed therapy over the past several years and that's really exciting particularly intraarterial therapy intraarterial radiation therapy uh, intraarterial chemoembolization these are all uh, excellent excellent uh, devices and methods to take care of these really challenging patients um, we've also i think recently started developing um, started offering prrt for metastatic uh, neuroendocrine tumors which is really exciting i've used that in my training programs down in dallas and uh, we were missing that and sending patients away for that treatment. But I think we've started offering that now, and that's also very exciting and hopefully offers our patient a lot of patients a lot of benefit. Yeah, we have. Uh, so we certainly are doing PRRT here on main campus as well. And I can only imagine the, the, the large number of new systemic therapies for HCC, for instance, has changed kind of how we approach surgery in that disease as well. That is correct. That's correct. So now HCC has always been a challenge in its uh, in its treatment, and we have multiple options available, both surgically and and uh, systemically. Uh, thankfully, systemic therapy has improved very significantly o- over the past uh, several years, and now we also have second and third line uh, therapies, including immunotherapy for metastatic HCC. And uh, all of this is very exciting. Um, we do have the ability to refer to our transplant team at, our, at Main Campus Cleveland Clinic, too, who've been wonderful, wonderful collaborators in their care. Uh, and yeah, we do we do see a lot of patients with HCC, and thankfully, they've all been doing, doing pretty well. So uh, within pancreas, within hepatobiliary surgeries, what do you think are the biggest gaps? Is it is it techniques? Is it when we stage various modalities? What What do you think are the, the biggest hurdles we're going to need to overcome to, to make more progress? Yes, particularly in terms of pancreas cancer, I think um, in terms of technique, even though we are moving towards minimally invasive surgery, the surgery itself has been very stable for a good few decades now. So what can we improve in terms of surgery? I think not so much. But uh, there's lots of exciting things coming up in terms of improvement in chemotherapy, various uh, systemic agents. I think the next frontier will be selecting the right patient for surgery. Um, we still see a lot of operations that are performed and patients have early recurrences. That should tell us that we are not selecting our patients properly and undergoing or allowing our patients to undergo the morbidity of the operation 
with very little benefit. I think the next frontier will be selecting the right patient, identifying which patient is going to have that several year, 10 year survival after, after surgery, hopefully disease-free survival and, and targeting those patients for surgery and trying to identify patients that will benefit from systemic therapy alone. This is still a challenge. We still do not have an equivalence in terms of the delivery of care for pancreas cancer. Across the country, uh, not everyone would agree that systemic therapy neoadjuvantly is the right thing to do for resectable pancreas cancer. So we don't have we don't have equivalence throughout the country. That's something that needs to um, be addressed as well. Uh, hopefully, over the next decade or so, we see more targeted therapy and better patient selection. And um, I think that will help us improve outcomes in pancreas surgery because in all honesty, we still struggle. Our survival and disease-free survival rates are not as good as it is for colon cancer, you know? Yeah, very good. Well, I certainly appreciate you uh, being there as a regional colleague and I appreciate your insights today and thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.